Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 23rd, 2019, and this is episode 2515 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, for, so it's time for a listener feedback show. And I uh, got some good stuff for you today. I got a great quote of the day starting out by Theodore Roosevelt. Last week we had a quote by um, some, uh, we had a quote that is misattributed to Theodore Roosevelt. So I thought, well, this week, how about we do an actual Theodore Roosevelt quote? I have a question on EDC ideas for a delivery driver who can't carry a weapon, with weapon in quotes. Uh, I got a Prager University video. I'm not always a fan of Prager U videos. This one I, I really like. It's about how government has made you fat. Yeah. Uh, and then I got a story. It's a personal story from my own life this weekend. It's a sad story. It's a sad story that involves a great loss, but it also involves a little bit better of a life because of free market solutions to the big problem that we ran into this Saturday morning. Um, and then I have a, an email on why personal protection equipment, PPE, belongs in your life. Um, I got a section I'm calling Markets Market and the Red Ranger Chicken Finds a Niche. The Red Ranger Chicken... Uh, there's some other names, Dixie Rainbow, that this bird is known by. They're grown in France. Uh, they're actually very, very well esteemed in France uh, as a pastured poultry. Um, but they don't market very well here in the United States, except the guy came up with a really great way to use them for a niche product. Uh, an oil trader states why he feels the Saudi oil attack was a false flag. I'm revisiting this because I said last week that I'm not convinced that Iran is actually who attacked Saudi Arabia. But I think the impression was that I'm saying Saudi Arabia attacked itself. I'm saying that's a possibility. I don't claim to know shit that I don't know. And I want to make sure I make that clear. And I'll give some thought to why this also does make sense as a possibility. Remember, possibilities and probabilities are very different. Possibility, it could have happened. Probability is, what is the likelihood that this thing happened or will happen? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about why the state hates contracting. Funny enough, unless they're the ones paying the contractors. Yeah. Uh, and the Fed is dumping money into the market again. Why the Fed really isn't trying to get rid of Donald Trump. At least it certainly doesn't look that way to me. And using food to preserve food. This may be cool or not so cool. We shall see soon. So that's our lineup for today. Before we dig into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Uh, bulk Ammo is my number one place that I go to to stock up on ammo when I feel like I need some more, which is like every day that ends in Y, I feel like I could use a little more ammo. Yeah. You know those things where they, we found a stockpile of a thousand rounds of ammo when we seized guns from this guy that we bothered for no good reason. I'm like, man, if you think a thousand rounds is a stockpile, that's two bricks of 22. Come on. Uh, so, you know, the thing about it seriously is whenever the gun grabbers start talking about grabbing guns, What disappears first, guns off the shelves or ammo off the shelves? And it's ammo. So uh, it's always a good idea to stay stocked up in ammo. You need it to use your gun to hunt. You need it to use for self-defense. And you need to use it for training and practice and fun. And you, a gun basically is not really a gun until you add ammo to it. I know the government calls it a gun and what have you. But when it comes right down to it, like a gun without ammo is a really expensive club. 
That's all it really is. So make sure you stock on my ammo and check out Bulk Ammo today to do just that. Next up today, JM Bullion. I have said the same thing for 11 years now. I'm not going to change. 5% to 10% of your net wealth put in over time with dollar cost averaging into silver and gold. Uh, precious metal is a store of value that you can hand down multiple generations. No one needs to know about it between you, me, and the fence post type situation. Uh, there are plenty of people that will actually do work or uh, provide services in exchange for silver and gold as well. Barter is better is the statement that we often hear in regard to that. I don't think gold and silver are the best forms of money in the world. I really don't. But I think they are one of the better forms. And I think they're definitely a better form of money in many ways than the United States dollars because they allow for privacy between individuals completing transactions. You can say cash does that. Yeah, it still involves the state, man. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into our quote of the day today. Quote of the day today, again, from Theodore Roosevelt. Courtesy is as much a mark of a gentleman as courage. Now, I completely agree with the former president and outdoorsman, Mr. Roosevelt, on that. The better of the two Roosevelts that have been president of this country, if you ask me. Not perfect, but definitely better than Franklin. Um, but I also hedge mine with, you know, courtesy is extended where it is, where it is due. Uh, one of my laws of life actually echoes this with a little different flair. Never be a dick. Unless you need to be a dick. And then be a dick as quickly and efficiently as possible. So there are times to use, I guess, what Mr. Roosevelt would call courage, or I would call abrasiveness or aggressiveness. But the majority of the time, you should be courteous. I've even been known to tell people sometimes when I'm absolutely at my end, will you please kindly F off somewhere else, right? Um, but yeah, I think there is a place in society for courtesy. And I think that... You know, we can be courteous to people that we disagree with easily enough. It, it, it's, it's amazing to me how much courtesy has gone out the window since the probability of getting punched in the mouth has gone down for being discourteous as everything has moved off or online. And it's amazing that I think people tend to still be pretty courteous in the offline world. Sometimes maybe they forget about it. Maybe they do end up punched in the mouth. You know, another great quote, one I always loved, was from Mike Tyson. Did say a lot of insightful things in his life, but this one was very insightful. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So that all kind of dovetails together. Just a good way to kick off our week. And let's, let's get into it. Um, I had, uh, I think it was Luke or Matt, I don't remember which one, somebody on uh, MeWe Monday Chats, which we do every Monday at the TSP chat uh, on MeWe. Uh, asked me about EDC for a delivery driver, uh, and he specifically can't carry a weapon. Uh, what he actually says was, I'm a delivery driver for a company that I can't technically carry weapons, but other than my lunch, plenty of water, is there anything you would suggest to have in a small travel bag daily while I'm on the road? My EDC is also normally a knife, a multi-tool, a stylus pro, which is a, a flashlight for those that don't know, uh, a hand sanitizer, battery charger, small first aid kit, and map of my area, anything else. When you say battery charger, to me, that means a way to charge batteries. So batteries, you know, how much batteries do you have for charging? I would also say, like, so I don't know if when you say battery charger, do you mean, like, 
a cell phone battery backup pack because that's something that I would really recommend. Uh, you can check out T-SPAS for the one that I recommend, but uh, my recommendation hasn't changed in three years, and until somebody comes up with something better, uh, I will continue making my recommendation, which is uh, the Anchor, Anchor Astro series, and Anchor is A-N-K-E-R, Astro, and the E7 is their kind of powerhouse one. Um, so I would definitely recommend that you have that because the odds of getting stranded somewhere are good, but you should have your vehicle with you and therefore a way to charge. Um, as far as, you know, you can't carry a weapon. If you're a delivery driver, you're probably driving a truck. Trucks have great big tires. Sometimes tires need checking. So I would really look to something like, you know, having a tire ability behind the seat um, where law enforcement or uh, employer can ask, well, what's that for? It's for checking the tires. I mean, you know. Especially if you ever tow trailers or something like that. Uh, if not, you know, a really good, you know, um, lug wrench is a pretty good impact weapon as well. So, because uh, a knife has some limitations for use as a weapon. And, and frankly, I would rather explain why I crack somebody a good one in the face with a tire ability because it just happened to be there rather than slice them up. Now, if my life's in danger, uh, you know, whatever is is whatever is. But... In general, if I have to back somebody down, I'd rather do it with a good tire billy or something like that. Um, on that note, another great impact tool and also just all-around great tool is a good solid mag light. And those are things that can be kept in your truck if you, as long as you drive the same truck instead of having to take them in and out every day. Uh, you, your bug-out bag, um, if you carry like ammo or a backup weapon in your bug-out bag, you may have to take up the practice of removing it when you go to work and get out of your vehicle, storing that in your vehicle. But just a good bug-out bag. You say a day pack, but to me, like especially as a driver where you're on the road, your bug-out bag should be with you. So for what goes in that, just look up some of the episodes that we've done uh, about uh, bug-out bags. If you're keeping that phone charged, though, is key because navigation you know GPS I mean I know we everybody wants to be able to rely on a map and compass I'm glad you have a map there um, but keeping that phone charged is one of the most important things that you can do if you have a documentation pack and you should like we talk about putting together for the sh on the show here uh, in the past and I'll put a link to the episode where I talked about that it's a rewind episode where you don't even have to listen to any commercials uh, but you should probably make a copy of that and just keep it behind the seat of your truck because that is your lifeline if shit goes wrong when you're away. A huge part of what you need to think about, though, is situational awareness. You need to pay attention to what's going on around you. Um, I don't know what you deliver, but a lot of times people that deliver things and pick things up are perceived as having money even if they don't. Um, so you need to really watch and make sure you're not being followed, you're not being cased. Um, when you have to park somewhere, Think about where you park. Don't park in a place. This is good for everybody, by the way. Don't park in places that would make you an easy target, that would make an easy ambush zone, things like that. Pay attention. If you, it looks like you're being tailed, you know, if, if you're a minute late, as long as you can get back on track and don't lose your job over it, making a left when you intended on making a right and going back around to a place, you know, um, that often tells you whether or not you're being tailed. Uh, a, a sophisticated person tailing you, It's not obvious, but the good news is most people that tell people are not very sophisticated. I highly recommend a first aid kit, though a lot of times that's something that is, you know, part of your vehicle kit. 
uh, if you um, if, if you work for someone that has a, a delivery vehicle. But I would, assuming that you do have that, I would open that kit up and go through it and know everything that's in it and shore up anything that's you know maybe weakness. Um, one of the things that happens, especially as we're heading into the winter months, is we end up uh, with chap skin, chap lips, and things like that in colder, drier weather. So chapstick, or I can't think of what this stuff is called now, man. It's the stuff I use all the time. It comes in a little, um, like a little jar that you open up, and uh, they sell it like at every convenience store. Oh, what the hell is that crap called? I mean, I, I, if I if I quit right now and I went and opened my drawer in my kitchen, there'd be a, a thing. Carmex, Carmex, yeah, like. I, a lot of people use like Burt's Bees and more expensive brands. I found Carmex works better than Chapstick and a lot of other things. And it seems to always work. One warning of that stuff, if it's in your vehicle and it gets hot, it goes to liquid. Just know that before you open it. Um, you know, some extra food is a really great idea. Remember, O Meals is in our uh, MSB. And uh, I think that O'Meals would do better if they upped up their calories and somehow reduced their weight. I think that it re they really don't do as well with backpackers as they would like to because if you have a 12-day supply of the O'Meals meals, you're, you're light on calories and heavy on weight. But for bug-out bags and vehicles and stuff like that, this stuff is fantastic because you dump a little bit of water and you got a steaming hot meal. And remember, they do a... Uh, a discount for members of the MSB. Making sure you kind of have like a full accoutrement of what you need if the vehicle breaks down, road flares and stuff like that. That, again, should be supplied by your employer, but make sure that they actually have the stuff that you need. I don't know if like you get a flat or something, are you responsible or do they have like a service or whatever? But if you're going to be responsible, make damn sure, and this is everybody as far as your vehicle, that you, the jack you have is a good, safe jack. Uh, all my vehicles, I buy a, a small floor jack, like a rolling floor jack, like the big version you have in a, in a, in a garage, like a smaller version of it. It's so much better than a bumper jack or any of the shit that comes. It's cranking jacks and stuff. Like I'll use one of those if I have to, but a floor jack is so much more stable and so much safer um, you know, I'm going to save some thoughts on what I would call personal protection equipment, like gloves and stuff like that, for another segment that we have a little bit later. Um, extra gas is probably not a bad idea, especially with a truck. It's probably easy for you to have a can of gas back there. Uh, jumper cables would be another thing I'd make sure you have. It's more about making sure that you can get the vehicle moving again. Uh, if you end up in a situation, make sure that you have the right additional clothing so in the summer you know maybe you just need a light change of clothes in case you get something on your clothes uh chemical wise or something like that uh but in the winter you want to have extra warm clothing maybe blanket stuff like that um a lot of this stuff again it really has a lot to do with do you have the same vehicle every day a lot of guys do and then it's really easy to have like stuff stored in the vehicle itself whereas if you have to take it in and out like that's that's kind of a different story um, uh, you know, to me, one of the most critical things you can have is ways to bind things together and attach things. So I have, you know, my big three on that is duct tape, tarred bank line, and, um, we call them tie wraps. And I like the removable tie wraps. Again, those are available at tspaz.com on my website. Um, those are great something to write with and you know it, it may be a good idea to have a little notebook that you keep that is one of those notebooks that's designed like it doesn't get ruined if it gets wet 
with a pen and pencil, you know, right in the vehicle in case you witness something, you need to record whatever uh, right away. Um, you anything that you have from your company that says who you officially are. I mean, just thinking about that, making sure that it's always easily available, especially if you get in some sort of issue with law enforcement. Like, is this? are you really supposed to have this vehicle? Something like that. Um, I don't think it's really that much different than what anybody should have in their vehicle, though. And I think that's the thing. Is like, so since I'm a delivery driver and I can't carry a weapon, like, my needs are special. No, your needs are pretty much the same that you should have if it was your own vehicle, except you don't get to carry your gun. Which I, I, I think is bullshit, but, you know, that, that's, you know, when you work for somebody, you fall subject to their rules. And I, I understand in some instances why companies do this. It's not always because they hate freedom, it's because they're trying to limit liability. And one thing that you need to understand is you build a company, you rely more and more on lawyers because you don't want to lose your entire company. And you can say whatever you want about, you know, it's right and freedom and whatever. And But there's a point where people get to, you know, hey, look, I have a multi-million dollar business here that I could have all destroyed in five seconds. And whether you're right or not to listen to your attorney, we tend to believe the people that we perceive as authority. So when the attorney says, hey, you're just better off if you do this, companies tend to do that. And the more the company grows and the more it becomes management by committee than individual, the more that becomes the case. People err to the side of caution. So that's the, again, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. That's the kind of the why behind a lot of it. But I'd love your thoughts. If you, especially those of you who do like, uh, route sales, delivery driving, things like that, what do you carry and, 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 and why? What's your rationalization for it? And if you ever feel unprotected due to weapons restrictions, what do you do about that? Like I said, uh, a tire billy or a, like a, you know, a, you know, go look at, you know, pick your favorite tire iron type of thing. And you always can have a reason for why that's there. Uh, and one more thing before we move on. There is the old myth that police officers tell people to keep a can of wasp spray in their house instead of uh, pepper spray or mace because uh, it's more effective or whatever. It's actually, if you intentionally use wasp spray on somebody, even somebody trying to break into your house, it's technically a violation of law. So if you do it, what you say is, well, it just happened to be there, so I grabbed it. Um, but it does work. And, I don't know, maybe a can of wasp spray behind the seat. I wouldn't use it unless you absolutely had to, but it does spray about 12 feet in a stream, and if you get in somebody's face, they're not really going to be doing much uh, for a while after that. So, that's just another thought. Let's take another one. So, next up, as you guys know, I've been uh, doing a keto diet, and uh, I, I've tried not to turn TSP into the keto hour. I think I've done one show dedicated to uh, sort of uh, ketogenic, low-carb eating, and it was really a gardening show. And it was all the stuff you can grow that's still low-carb. So it was really a gardening show that just happened to be low-carb veg. So I, I've, I've really tried to do that, but I, you know, I, I'm basically putting out a second podcast every day now that'll range anywhere from like eight minutes to thirty minutes on YouTube, and it's not really a podcast in a podcast feed, but maybe I should go make audio files and do that. I don't know, um, but it's there, and so it's there instead of me bringing it here, and that's one of the reasons that I'm doing it. But that does create interest about that from you guys in the audience who also partake in that information and, and bring it here. Well, it spawned one person to send me this video from Prager University, and it's called How the Government Made Us Fat. And it's really not like a pro-keto diet uh, video, but it is absolutely an accurate video. 
and what has been done to us by government. And I actually agree 100% with the takeaway, even though I wouldn't choose some of the options given that takeaway. So I want to just, I'll play the audio to that video for you now. And if you want to actually see the video, which does add some things to it, I'll be a link in the show notes where you can see the actual video and share it with people and things like that in the show notes today. So hopefully uh, nobody at Prager University is mad at me for using their content. Here we go. Here's this Prager University video. Here's a riddle. How is it that ever since the government began telling us what to eat, we've gotten fatter and sicker? In 1977, when the government first set dietary guidelines, the average American male weighed 170 pounds. He now weighs 197. It's not any better for women, 145 to 170. And you don't need an academic study to know the same thing is happening to kids. Just look around. The weight gain has real-life consequences. The percentage of Americans diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, a condition that can lead to severe medical issues, has risen from 2% in 1977 to over 9% in 2015. In hard numbers, that's 5 million people to over 30 million people. How did this happen? It all started innocently enough in the 1950s when President Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack while in office. Suddenly, the issue of heart health became a national obsession. Keep in mind, this was an era when scientists had harnessed the power of the atom, unlocked the secrets of DNA, and cured once incurable diseases like polio. Surely, there had to be a scientific solution to heart disease. There was. And a charismatic medical researcher from the University of Minnesota named Ansel Keys had it. Cholesterol, Keys claimed, was the villain of the heart disease story. His now famous seven countries study determined conclusively, in his mind at least, that people who consumed high amounts of fat, specifically saturated fat, had higher cholesterol levels and thus higher rates of heart attacks. Lower your fat intake and you would lower your heart disease risk. The ever-confident keys spread the gospel. As an influential member of the American Heart Association, he was in a very strong position to do so. There was only one problem. Keyes' study was bad science. The sample size was so small, the data collection integrity so shoddy, and the lifestyle variables between the countries he studied so great that his research had no scientific validity. In other words, he asserted a conclusion he couldn't prove. When other scientists questioned Keyes' conclusions, they were invariably met with stern responses, like people are dying while you're quibbling over data points, and there are great benefits and no risks to adopting this new way of eating. In 1973, the American Heart Association set the dietary limit on saturated fat at 10%, and in 1977, the U.S. government followed suit. Where did the 10% value come from? It didn't come from any scientific data. It was merely a government committee's best guess. This was despite contrary evidence like the 1957 Western Electric Company employee study showing no difference in heart attacks in those who ate more or less saturated fat. A longer-term study of the same Western Electric subjects in 1981 reached the same conclusion. But again, no one wanted to hear it. To make this all easier to understand and to spread the message to schools, the food pyramid was created. That's the chart you first saw in third or fourth grade, with all the supposedly good foods at the bottom, meaning eat a lot of those, and the bad foods at the top, eat those ones sparingly. 
What our kids are fed in school, what our military troops are fed on bases, what sick people are fed in hospitals, what crops we plant, and how we raise our cattle are all predicated on this deceptive nutritional concept. As Americans ate less saturated fat, margarine instead of butter, processed oils like corn oil instead of olive oil, low-fat milk, low-fat yogurt, and so on, they also started to eat more heart-healthy grains, exactly what the food pyramid and the updated version called MyPlate advise you to do. As the consumption of saturated fat decreased by almost 40%, the consumption of refined grains, carbohydrates that convert to sugar in the body, increased substantially. Total intake of calories also began to increase. This happened in no small part because food companies took advantage of the low-fat craze. They lowered fat and increased sugar. Suddenly, supermarkets were full of supposedly healthy, low-fat, high-sugar foods. It remains that way today. Foods that are high in sugar stimulate reward centers in the brain and leave us wanting more. Thus, the famous line about potato chips, bet you can't eat just one. The end result is a fatter population with greater and greater health issues, like type 2 diabetes, a problem that's getting worse, not better. How do we get ourselves out of this spiral? There are many answers. For some, it's a low-carb, high-fat diet. For others, it's a Mediterranean diet. For some, it's vegetarianism. For others, it might be something else. You need to find the best solution for you. And that's really the point. We need to take responsibility for our own health. If the food pyramid has taught us one thing, it's this. Don't rely on the government to take care of you. I'm Dr. Brett Schur, cardiologist for Prager University. Okay, so me taking all of my faith in keto dieting, and I do want to give you guys an update, though, just to, to reinforce how good this stuff works. I have been doing this officially for 43 days. In 43 days, I have lost 24.4 pounds. That is 9.88% of my starting body weight. I've lost almost 10% of my starting body weight. And my body fat is now 26%. And it started over 30%. 10 days ago, it was 29%. In the last 10 days, my body fat percentage has gone down by 3%. I am one inch around my waist from coming out of the category of being overweight, obese, to being acceptable. Acceptable will not be good enough for me. Fit is where I'm headed for. If you want to know... My bigger goal in this, uh, which is pretty cool, you can see the video I mentioned. I put out these videos every day on YouTube that I put out today. Put a link to that too. So that's that's that. But this this video by Prager University isn't. Hey, everybody, go low carb keto. The the real upshot of this video is every time the government touches something and they try to fix something, they make it worse. And there's a couple things in there that are true and really need to be understood to understand why we should stop listening to government. Period. Which is the big takeaway from this. Take responsibility for your own shit, do your own research, and don't trust government. That's really what that video is about. So one is the fact that the number of 10% fat for your calories is just a number that government gets that. So you already have people who are not qualified to know what the hell they're doing when you have government doing something. One of the biggest reasons I don't think that government should be regulating guns is most people in government don't know anything about guns. I don't think they should be regulating the Internet because most of these ass clowns don't know anything about technology. They shouldn't be regulating food because most of them don't know anything about food. And as far as, well, you know, they have experts that advise them. No, they have lobbyists that advise them. They don't advise them in what's best for you and me. Lobbyists advise Congress 
in what's best for their clients, which is so that they can make more money, which is why most of our Congress doesn't even author or write laws. Whenever you hear somebody, I authored a bill. No, you didn't. No, a lobbyist authored a bill that they knew fit what you wanted to, to market for yourself and gave it to you. That's what actually happened. None of these people author bills. They don't. And so this 10% number is people already not qualified, also just guessing. Next, Ansel Keys. To me, Ansel Keys has more blood on his hands than most dictators. I mean, tens of millions of Americans have died or been disfigured or maimed or gone through serious surgery because of his recommendations. Tens of millions over the years, since the 70s when this guy popped up. And the study that they're talking about in there, the seven countries study, I mentioned it last week, as flawed as it is, what I really want you to understand, and one of the reasons I ran this is so I could, I realized I forgot to tell you this last week. One of the biggest flaws with the seven countries study is that it doesn't tell the truth about itself. You see, in the seven countries study, Ansel himself, who did author his own study, and then presented the results as he saw fit, in his own study, It specifically actually says that the incidence, this is verbatim, the incidence of an increased risk of cardio, uh, cardiovascular um, uh, problems, heart attack, etc., is, is correlated with an increased consumption of both fat and carbohydrates. But then he chose to present in the final results, well, but yeah, both of them are high where these people have lots of heart attacks, but... We'll just eliminate one and everything will be okay. And no one ever tested what happens if we eliminate one and not the other and eliminate the other and not the other one. Nobody ever tested that till now when you have all these people doing low carb. So that that's a big part of the flaw in that study. Again, this is not to push you in any direction because I am back to you should do your own research. The problem is that most of what people call research today is just confirmation of what they want to believe. So people go out and find supporting evidence. If you think you should live a diet on whole grains, you can find mountains of supposed evidence. But until you start to actually understand the methodology behind supposed evidence, and you actually look for the science, because there is no science. There is no science that shows if you eat a diet based on whole grains, you will reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. There is no science that says that. There is science that says if you reduce your consumption of sugars in all forms, which are carbohydrates, that you will reduce your risk. There is science for that. Old science. None of this is actually new. And what I want you to be alert for, and the hell with diet right now, the, the unholy cabal that is fascism, that is government and industry together. And as soon as you get that, and then you add to it The, the, the third component to the, the unholy trinity of the demise of a society is when the people place faith in the first two. It's bad enough when you have industry and government working together, but when people actually start to use the, the, whatever those entities combined put out is proof of anything and then place faith in it, you have the decline of a civilization. We have what we talk about as being a separation between church and state, and I am all for it. 
I don't even think there's enough separation of church and state. I don't believe that religion and government have any business being involved with each other, mainly because I find the state to be illegitimate in the first place. But if there's going to be a state, it should be way over here. And, go, and, and religion should be way over there. And your religion is your religion. You should be able to talk about it, preach it, spread your word, be an example, do whatever you want, as long as you cannot use force to compel anybody else to be part of it. You should be able to say anything you want about your faith and your version of God and thereof, and the way people should live, as long as you can't force anybody to be involved. And the state should have nothing to do with that. Right? But I think that there is more harm in not having a separation between industry and state. So much of what has been done to harm people is because of that. Because the market is wonderful when it's actually a market. Markets are where people choose to voluntarily do business with an entity because of what that entity offers. The state is force. That's the problem with the state. The entire concept of the state is force. And because of that, the market gains a tool it would not otherwise have. Nabisco can't send men to your home with guns and make you get in your car, drive to the store, and buy Nabisco. They can't do it. PepsiCo can't do it, etc. They have to market to you. But they can then use the force of government to create a mandate, even if it's not a directly enforced mandate, of how society should eat, and have our institutions then begin to build all the meals they serve based on this mandate. And then they can go into your schools, which is absolutely run by force. They take your money against your will and indoctrinate your children to believe what they want them to believe and condition them to believe this mandate. And every, it's a hell with diet again. It's everything government does this with. And everything they touch, they make worse. Healthcare sucked 25 years ago. It sucks worse now because they tried to fix it. College, going to college and paying to go to college was hard 25 years ago. It's worse now because they tried to fix it. Everything government touch, it makes worse. The Middle East is a nightmare. It was bad 50 years ago. It's worse now because our government touched it. And this is where we have to start absolutely when government says something, do not, see this is the part where you have to not act like a child. Just because government says it doesn't mean it's wrong. But the fact that government says it should have no bearing on your opinion of it. And the fact that industry says it should have no bearing on your opinion of it. Everything should be researched and examined scientifically. And someone saying the science says does not mean the science says anything. It doesn't mean that. Science means that we actually look at things in a controlled environment. And unless it's actually been done in a controlled environment with actually a, a meaningful experimental and control group, the scientific method they do teach you in school, I hope they still teach this, unless that happened, it's not science. A study that is, I gathered a bunch of data and put it together in a way that makes my point, is not science. It's an attempt to build a case, and it may be valid, but it probably isn't. It's probably not as valid as it looks, because everybody markets everything they say. And you've got to think for yourself. Now, right, good, good segue from that into a free market solution. I am lucky that I live in a place where the government doesn't pick up my garbage. 
Because the government doesn't pick my garbage up, and because there is a place to take garbage too, there are people that want money, and they don't hate money, and they said, hey, you know the thing I can do? I can go pick up people's garbage and take it to the place that garbage goes to and dispose of it for them. It's called a free market, and it truly is a free market. I have been places where, yeah, it's private, but there's one company. And there's one company because they were able to use government to make it one company, right? Um, no, that's not a free market. But here, literally anybody that wants to be in a waste disposal company with a little bit of investment can do the job. The people that pick up our garbage, they have guys that drive around and pick up trucks with a trailer. They throw the garbage bags on the trailer. When it's full, they go to the dump and they keep going. And we pay them every month. Now, how does that track into being lucky that it's a free market? Well, something horrible happened this weekend. I have three deep freezers because of we run events and we have lots of food and some other reasons. So I have this little monitor that's in two of them. And if the freezer gets warm, it sends me an alert. It says, Jack, holy shit, I'm warm. But I have it in two of them. And it was one of those things I never got around to getting a third one to put in the third freezer. And so the third freezer is the newest one, which would be the least likely one to die. It's also one of the biggest ones that had some of the most valuable food and wild game in it that I had. And Thursday, I guess it was, I went out and went to the freezer, and everything was frozen solid, and everything was working just fine. It might have already died, maybe if it just died, because the freezer didn't die itself. Like Probably the compressor quit. But somewhere in all of this, the thing stopped working. And it may have been you know, previous to Thursday of this, and I may have just not noticed because I reached in and grabbed something out, it was still frozen. But Saturday afternoon, we were leaving the house, and my wife's like, did you take anything out for dinner? And we had a friend coming over, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go grab a backstrap out in the, the big freezer. I'm going to go grab it. I opened it up, and all the food was defrosted, and it was already starting to stink, and some of the vacuum-sealed bags were, like, blown up like balloons from off-casting. And it immediately hit me with that smell of death. Oh, I thought I was going to puke. Closed it. Went to my wife, I need your help. I can't do it alone. We've got to get everything out of there. And I'll just throw some bleach in there. And we'll close it up and we'll figure out what to do later. But we got to get it out of there. So we ended up with like six garbage bags, double bagged of rotting, stinking flesh. And we just put it outside of the garage and it was bad. I mean, it wasn't quite to the level of vomit inducing yet, but it was bad. We went and did our thing. We came back. I put it all in one of our garbage bins. And this is Saturday afternoon. My wife called our garbage company. And our garbage day is Wednesday. And you can imagine if this stuff sat from Saturday till Wednesday, how bad it would be. And explain the situation. And they said, well, we don't run routes on Sunday, but we'll pick it up Monday morning. And the guy said, send me an email so I don't forget, and I'll, I'll move, I'll have my guy that's in your area stop by your, first, your place first and pick it up. Okay, so we got rid of it two days early. I guarantee if we had like a state-run garbage, they would have told us to go screw. But what would have happened, like when I lived in Arlington and we had like the city pick up your garbage, and our day was Thursday, right? So I would have waited till Thursday. Well, my neighbors, neighbors would have complained, and the, the police probably would have came out and gave me a ticket, and there would have been no real place for me to get rid of this stuff. I mean, where would I take it? I guess to the dump. The dump is a hell of a drive for me. I and mean, we could have done it if we had to. 
you know, or drive around with this stinking, rotting flesh in my truck and try to figure out a dumpster I can make at somebody else's problem. I don't want to do that. So I would have come up with a solution. Maybe even I could have found somebody that would have come and taken care of it for me that I could have paid, a free market one. But because I had a free market solution, my solution was really easy. And the reason government would have never said, Mr. Spearco, you know, we'll send one of our trucks to get your stuff for you on Monday. It's just they don't have to. Like, they have no concerns whatsoever that I'll stop using their service. Because even if I don't use it, they charge me for it anyway in my taxes. I pay for it against my will whether I use it or not. Because people have to compete for my business, they came. And I'm going to tell you what we did. We saw the guy show up this morning. My wife was getting ready to go get my grandkids. She ran out and handed the guy a $20 bill. And she said, I am so sorry you have to deal with this. Thank you so much for taking the extra effort. So both parties voluntarily did more than they had to. That never happens with government. And that's why markets need to be allowed to market. And if they're not, bad shit happens. Next up, this was an interesting email I thought was at least worth um, kind of mentioning. Jerry sent this one, and we're going to be doing more shows about vehicle kits, travel kits, and stuff like that in the future, so I'm not going to go that deep in this today. I want to keep the show reasonably length, because I've been working really hard to do lately. Uh, but Jerry said something people may want to consider keeping in their car or go bag is basic personal protective equipment. You remember, you may remember PPE from your cable running days, things like gloves, safety glasses, dust masks, earplugs, etc. Yeah, I completely agree. Dust masks are something that people really don't think about. And I'll just give you an example of a day that it was a blessing to have if you had them with you. 9-11. If you were on ground zero on 9-11. And there's a lot of things that happen like that that aren't quite as bad. And no, you're not going to be able to walk through a fire with a dust mask on, or it's not going to act like a gas mask and save you from sarin gas or something. But there are times when things happen that, and this is you got to understand this, it's not just a convenience thing. Like the, the inhaling certain things can do serious damage to your lungs long term. One of the things that I'm really careful with whenever I work with it, it seems quite benign, is perlite. Perlite is something that we use for mixing uh, potting soils and stuff like that. It's little puffed rock. It's basically like volcanic rock, except it's white. And it's puffed up with heat, so it's really light. It's the annoying stuff that when you water something that has too much of it and it all floats to the top, right? Well, when it's dry and coming out of a bag and you're mixing it, the, the dust that comes off of that is incredibly bad for your lungs because you're basically inhaling volcanic rock dust. And it can end up stuck in your lungs and stay in your lungs. A lot of the first responders that you're hearing about um, that have problems from 9-11 and diseases, um, it's either because of inhaled particles like that, not just chemicals, or at least those things made it worse. So uh, definitely dust masks are something you should have not only in your vehicles, in your go bag, but around your shops and stuff like that. Because I think men have a tendency to, I don't need that. Yeah, you, you do. You really do. So uh, just to kind of a quick call out that, look at all your gear and think about a little bit more of the personal protection stuff. And with gloves, I'd say you want leather gloves, and you also want uh, a good insulating pair of gloves, too. And I mean, like, insulating against electri electrical stuff. Now, you really shouldn't be jacking around with electrical shit unless you know what you're doing, but it just made me think of it when he said um, your cable days. So 
One of the things people don't realize is that CATV cable, yeah, the one that comes to your house, there's no real power on that. Okay? There's no electricity running on that. The big, when you look up at a telephone pole and you see like three layers of wire, right? You'll see, basically you got CATV, which is your cable television, right? Then you've got telephone. Then you got electric. That's the order they go in up. Well, that lower level, you'll see a really big, thick cable. Now, a lot of it's fiber, long-haul fiber now, but a lot of it's still what they call hard-line coax. And that'll, it's measured in inches, so like 500 is a half inch, 625 is 6.25, 750 is 750. Now, each one of those has a tool called a coring tool. That basically, if you need to splice it or you know, tie it into another system like uh, an amp or a head end or something, uh, an, an amp or uh, an, anything else, um, it has to be cored and then a fitting is put onto it. Now, there are these amplifiers, and you'll see like they have this big metal box a lot of times hanging on one of those wires, and those are amplifiers, and they run on DC current. And it is not the kind of DC that is, or electricity that's generally enough to kill you, but it can really hurt you. And what you do is you either open the amplifier down line from where you're at, or you pull the face off a thing called a tap, and either one of those will stop the power coming through, if you got it right. And we'll check it with your multimeter. Well... Maybe. Is it a damaged cable? Can I not yet see the core? Do I have to cut it to be able to do that, to make sure that the power is gone? Yeah, rubber gloves. And all it takes is one time being sure, and the tools that you use to do the coring, they can go on a drill, and you're probably not getting hit. But there's also, like, sometimes you use a hand crank one because you can't get a drill into a spot or you don't have a drill. All it takes is one time cranking on that and getting lit up to, to never do it again. And the consequences are it hurts really bad and it knocks your dick in your back pocket. Okay? <laughs> That's about it. You're going to be okay. Um, other situations with electricity, you're dead. So that's something else to think of about with PPE. Uh, next up, I have an email here from Mark. This is another really quick one, but I thought it was cool. He says, I sell 500 or so chickens per year to a private buying group. I also sow turkeys and pigs. I primarily raise Cornish Cross as they are the standard. I've done several batches of Freedom Rangers as a test. We continue to raise Freedom Ranger for personal consumption. For the buying club, we recently developed a 100% chicken bratwurst with garlic and pepper. The only source of fat is in the skin. They are very tasty, but you have to watch them carefully or they will quickly end up too dry. As I thought about a solution that I would keep... Uh, the product of all the chicken, I remembered the Freedom Ranger. I'm sure you know the meat is a bit darker overall, and the pin feathers are a pain. This causes retail customers to pass over it. But in addition to the meat being darker, it comes with more fat than a Cornish cross. We made a test run, and they all sold out. I like the fact they're more active for three to four weeks longer. I feel the frame is better for stock, and our next batch is due in mid-November. Selling out caught us off guard, but we have a bunch in the brooder, and the tractor is growing, and the tractor is growing as fast as they can. I thought you might want to consider this when you order your meat birds for next year, Mark. Mark, thank you. That's actually brilliant. Use the Freedom Rangers more for a sausage. Now, let me tell you something about Freedom Ranger chickens. I did these in the past. I raised 50 of them. 
I would never raise them for direct market unless I had an educated consumer that knew what they were asking for and had them before. There's a couple things. Number one, the breast is a much smaller piece of meat than the Cornish cross. Cornish cross is huge brush, breast, and you know medium-sized legs and thighs. Cornish cross has small breasts comparatively in that they're not as thin as a duck breast, but they're more shaped like a duck breast. They're a little flatter. They're, not as, they're just as big like end-to-end, but they're not as thick. They're not as full. People tend to like chicken breast. I know it's the flavorless meat. You know that too, but there's that. But it's really good. It is a little darker than the snow white meat of the Cornish cross, but it's white meat, as are the wings. The legs are huge. Said like Trump, huge, right? <laughs> um, just huge. But when you let them get really big, they get a lot tougher than a Cornish cross. And if you cook them bone in, you can cook them in a slow cooker for three hours. And when you pull the meat off the bone, it, the, still, the bones still look bloody. There's no way that chicken's not done. But it looks like that. And it just doesn't market well in this market. Now, my understanding is in France, they actually don't get, they grow them fairly small in France. But if you run them longer than the Cornish crosses, these things get big. I'm talking 12 pounds dressed weight big for the cockerels. So as a sausage bird for chicken sausage, you're going to have more fat in the dark meat, more fat in the white meat, and more skin, and more dark, and more dark meat per bird. And, a, and, a, and a, a meat with a little more consistency and toughness to it is actually going to give you a better ground product. So I, I think this is fantastic. And what I might do is order like, I was going to do 25 Cornish crosses and take them to my processor. I don't have time to process them myself. And have them process like, you know, five in, five in the whole birds and the other 20 in the parts. Make it easier to freeze them. I guess I'll be getting a new freezer if I can't fix the one I already have. Um, but I may do like, you know, 10 Red Rangers at the same time and just straight all the sausage and see what I can come up with because that is a fantastic idea. And they can all be together. And then when the Cornish crosses graduate, you can just keep your Red Rangers on uh, pasture a little bit longer. Um, next, uh, comment on a point. This is from Brady. You made earlier this week. Thought John would appreciate it too. I spoke with a good friend yesterday who owns a company in Oklahoma that does energy trade hedging for mid-market U.S. banks, who was a quantitative analyst in the industry for 10 years before that. He's reasonably certain that it was the Saudis, as you theorized, that were behind the attack, primarily because they did not do anything ex to uh, extraction capacity, and very specifically targeted only refinery assets and the older ones at that. If Iran or whoever wanted to cause a problem, it would be at the wellheads. That's actually a brilliant analysis. Now, I am very, very slow to call something false flag. Uh, it seems like most shit that happens, as soon as it happens, you can be like, and there'll be a false flag video about it in three, two, one. There it is. I mean, everything's a false flag all the time, everywhere. I am not saying that Saudi, the Saudis attacked themselves. I'm not saying they did. I don't know if it was the Yemenis who have a hell of a reason to do it. I don't know if it was the Yemenis that did it with Saudi, with, with Iranian support. And I don't know if the Saudis did it to themselves. And I don't know if some third party that we are not even thinking of did it, including potentially making it look like the Iranians did it. I don't know which one it is. I do know the country with the least to gain 
by attacking oil assets in Saudi Arabia is Iran. And what people are saying is due to the sanctions and how bad Iran is doing financially, that their hope was to drive up oil prices so the oil they can sell would help them. That's their motivation. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because, well, what I just heard here is, is, is right. Like if you wanted to actually up oil prices, you'd want to do damage to production capacity. Um, and the Saudis do do some refining, but they don't do anywhere near as much refining as other places do. A lot of Saudi oil ships as crude and gets refined elsewhere. So, and then the older ones at that, and like the Iranians aren't stupid, right? The Iranians are stupid. It's not like they didn't know that. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll just like, oh, that looks like oil, shoot at it. Right? Now, The Iranians have a pretty sophisticated government. I didn't say a good one. I said sophisticated. So if they actually wanted to cripple oil output, then why wouldn't they hit the wells? Or at least the more valuable oil assets. And if, apparently, like it was like a day and a half later, they said 50% of what was taken offline was already back online. So I'll just make an analogy like this. You are a cop... And you get a, a report that there's a murder. And you go in, and a husband and wife are supposedly attacked. And the wife is, like, stabbed 47 times. And her head is caved in with, like, some heavy object from the house. The husband has a few bumps and bruises on him and a couple superficial knife wounds. And his story is, this guy came in the house... He was on my wife, stabbing my wife. I tried to grab him. He slashed at me. I covered my face. I tried to fight him off. He hit me in the head, and I blacked out. And I woke up, and there she was laying dead, and he was gone. And I don't know what happened. And I, that's all I saw. I really didn't see his face. I'm lucky to be alive. Okay, he might be telling the truth. And if you're a good detective, you're going to be suspicious, but you're going to be open to the possibility that he's telling the truth. But what is your gut going to tell you in that situation? The wife is overkilled. The husband's injuries are superficial. It's staged. I see superficial wounds inflicted on Saudi Arabia. And again, the country with the most to gain by the United States attacking Iran is Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm going to put this in a totally different perspective for you. Let's say Iran did it. My stance on what the United States should do, which is absolutely nothing. In fact, we should do the square root of nothing. doesn't change for two reasons. One I mentioned earlier, and I say this all the time, everything we touch in the Middle East, we make worse. When you have that track record, stop touching shit. Okay, Just stop touching it. Whatever you do, you're going to make it worse. But number two, the Saudi Arabians buy assloads of weaponry from the United States. They have a military. If they want to have a conflict with Iran, let them have a conflict with Iran. It's not our business. It's not our business. It's not our business. It's not our business. This country is energy independent at this point. right? How long will we stay that way? I don't know, but we are right now. We still buy oil and gas from other places, but we export more than we import now. We don't actually have to buy anybody's oil and gas right now. 
It is not our business. It is not our business. But they're an ally. They are not an ally as in a NATO ally where we have an agreement whereby we are bound by honor and signature to rise up and fight anybody that, fight, that, that, that attacks them. They're not a NATO country. We don't have that kind of alliance with them. They have F-16s. They have F-35s. They have tanks. If they want war, let them do their own fighting. Not us as their proxy. None of our effing business. None. And again, everything we touch, we make worse. What did Einstein say? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So we've tried sticking our fingers into every single thing in the Middle East for the last hundred plus years. Why don't we try doing absolutely nothing for ten years and see what happens? If somebody bombs us, we can bomb them back. If somebody shoots at us, we can shoot back. If somebody kills one of us, we can kill ten of them in return. We can do 10 to 100 of them. I'm okay with any of it. You attack me, I am going to light your shit up. But I'm going to walk away. I'm going to... Another Roosevelt quote, Teddy Roosevelt. Speak softly, carry a big stick. We are going to leave you alone. That's what you get if you jack with us. And you might find that people would by and large leave us alone. This country will attack that. They kill, they've been killing each other for thousands of years. It is not our business, and we have propped up regimes there. We have made what is unsustainable sustainable. If we leave it alone, it will eventually work itself out. Lots of people will die. Well, lots of people die anyway. How many people have died at the tip of U.S. missiles and bombs since we started involving ourselves in this shit? Massive numbers. The ideology of the people that want to run this ISIS-type caliphate is so unsustainable without a Satan to point to and say, they are the danger. You, you need to let us be this bad, because if we, if, you, if we don't, they are coming to send you to hell. We are your salvation. Remove it. You have a delusional ideology. And when you have a delusional ideology that thinks you're the enemy, the more aggressive you become, the more delusional the entrenched ideology becomes. So, that's my thought on that. I don't think they did it, and even if they did, not our problem. Why are we selling the Saudis all this, all these defensive and offensive weapons only to go fight their battles for them? Bullshit. All right. Um, well, they can't win. Then maybe they shouldn't engage in a conflict. Huh? Sun Tzu, the art of war. Never enter a battle unless you know victory is certain. All right. So, anyway, next up... Um, There's, I'm not going to actually read the article to you, but there's a sweeping law in California that's reclassifying California's contract records uh, workers uh, to be employees. So I employ you as a contractor. I don't have to pay benefits. So the government then says, no, you can't do that. This person's not really a contractor. And this is big time. And it's already like the hardest state in the country to actually call someone a contractor in is California. And it's a lot harder now than it was 10 years ago at the federal level to do the same thing. Government hates contract employees, right? And they always do it under the guise of, well, we're doing this because you're cheating this person. You're cheating them out of health insurance. You're cheating them out of X, Y, and Z. You're cheating them, you're cheating them, you're cheating them. Let me translate that bullshit for you. You're costing upgrade money. And Upgrade going to get his money. Let's say I employ you as a contractor. 
How many things become tax deductible for you that are otherwise not tax deductible? Lots. How much more streamlined is my business? Much more. How much less bullshit do I have to deal with with government? A lot. And when I have to deal with government bullshit, what does that mean? People always look at the cost in, in my time, my employees' time, etc. There is that. There's entire industries that are built on the fact that as a company, I don't have time to deal with government's bullshit. Now, what did I say the most unholy cabal is? Government and industry working together. They write all these regulations. So the industry works with government to write all this compliance bullshit the, the companies have to deal with and create mountains of red tape. And the same industry writing that is the industry that specializes in handling the bullshit. Payroll companies, etc. So now you're costing the state tax money. You're costing the industry that wrote the laws all of their bullshit red tape money. Well, the cabal doesn't like that. Because isn't it interesting? There are literally millions of people that work for the federal government as contractors and work for the California, not, now not millions just in California alone, but in all the states. There are millions of people in total that work directly for the federal government or directly for state government or directly for local governments as contractors. None of the government apparatus ever say an effing word about any of it. They only care when Jack Spierko, Inc. makes an agreement with somebody to work for me as a contractor. And they say they're helping you. Well, who did, if I hire you to work for me as a contractor, who made that agreement? Did I come to your house with guns and say, hey, look, man, you're going to work for me? And you go, okay, Jack, don't put guns at me, but, you know, so you're going to give me at least health insurance. I go, no, man, I jacked that gun up your nose, man. I pushed the barrel well up in your right nostril and say, listen, bitch, you're going to work for me as a contractor. Do you understand me? Is that how that relationship got established? Or did I say, hey, I need someone to do X, Y, and Z? And you said, hey, I could do X, Y, and Z. And I say, you know what? I pay a straight contract rate of X dollars an hour. And these are my terms for you to fulfill this obligation to me. And you say, I like that. And we shake hands and I give you a contract and you sign it. It states my obligations and your obligations. And everybody's happy. Which one of those two scenarios is how you become a contractor for me? Now, what the government will say is, well, some companies, what they're doing, they're taking people that used to be employees and they're turning them into contractors to avoid paying all this health insurance. It's not, not right and not fair. You assholes, again, everything they touch, they make worse. So I had you working as an employee. I can't, I have a hundred people work for me. Okay. I can't afford to have a hundred people working for me anymore because of the burden government gave me. I have two choices. I can reclassify a significant portion of my workforce as contractors. Or I can fire 20% of them. So I can even move to like probably 40 to 45% contractors to offset this additional expense. Or I can fire about 20 to 25% of my workforce. The government would prefer that I fire 20 to 25% of my workforce. When they do this shit, that's what they're saying. Because the way they look at it, they want everybody as an employee. Employees play by the rules. Employees file 1040s and 1040EZs. They don't file Schedule Cs. They don't get to deduct mileage. They don't get to deduct all of their educational expenses. They don't get creative. They just do what they're supposed to do. They always pay their taxes because their employer makes them, because the employer has to, because they make their employer do it. 
So that's why the state hates contractors. They don't care. They don't care one bit that you don't get your benefits. They don't give a shit about you. There's nobody making this policy. It's like, you know, what we really need to do is make sure that everybody... No. No. They want their money. That's what it's always about. Um, next up, John Amore Park sent me this one, too. And least you think quantitative easing is a thing of the past. And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a very recent article, September 19th. So we're talking five, four days ago. The Fed just pumped another $75 billion into the market, its third straight daily injection. The central bank has injected a, a total of $203 billion into the markets this week. $75 billion on both Wednesday and Thursday, and $53 billion on Tuesday. Um, so the Fed did that, and what they're trying to do is keep interest rates down. Now you say, but the Fed just cut the interest rate. No, the Fed cut their interest rate. Their rate is for intra-institution lending. So you're Bank of, uh, of Jehoshaphat, and I'm the Federal Reserve, and I say this is the rate at which I will loan you money as a bank so that you can go out and make more money with it by using it as a backing to loan lots more money than you actually have on a 10% reserve, uh, fractional reserve system, which we can't get in today. But it's the scam. And it's also like I set that rate and I give it to you, and then you can go buy government bonds with it and make the difference. So there's not a lot of money in getting like a quarter point interest, but how much money would you borrow if you could borrow an unlimited amount of money and get a guaranteed return of a quarter percent on it? <laughs> Let that sink in. And that's what they're doing here, right? They're pumping more money in by buying up assets, by doing zero interest loans, by any means necessary to keep interest rates down. And they have two reasons to do this. One is self-preservation, and two is the economy, because I don't think the Federal Reserve is really interested in getting rid of Donald Trump. Trump can make them out to be the enemy, and they're like, oh, God, I don't want to say this, because Batman was a good guy, right? But they're kind of like Batman. He can be the vigilante bad guy if that's what Gotham needs him to be, right? So if Trump is Gotham, the Fed can be Batman. Like, he can be, they can be the bad guy. They're okay with it. They can get away with it, right? So they can be the whipping pole, even if it's not really true. I bet you, I bet you Trump gets along fine with members of the Federal Reserve, including his guy that he put up, put up there. But he can do that. If they really wanted the economy to, to tank a bit right now and get rid of the guy, they wouldn't be doing this. But the other reason is, if interest rates go too high right now, the way the Fed's balance sheet is, you can have a complete bankruptcy of the Federal Reserve. Now, you really won't, because they can always just more money. But you can get the runaway inflation. You can get the big financial disaster. Because if the interest rates go up right now, not only the Federal Reserve has a problem, but the United States government won't be able to make its payments on the debt. So they're doing everything they can to suppress interest rates. The good news, it works. I didn't say it would work forever. I didn't say it was a good idea long term. I said it works, and it does. It absolutely does. They can continue to pump money in, so they're doing quantitative easing, what, 5.0 now. And that doesn't mean the economy's going to rock and roll, but they can keep it from cratering in an oblivion. They can do this to the point where even if we go into a recession, it's a recession, not a depression. It's what they did in 2008-2009. They caused it, but they also prevented it from being the Great Depression. Instead of the Great Depression, we had the Great Recession. right? And Man, people, I, I really 
I kind of have a loathing for humanity for the term Great Recession because all it was was an attempt to make us feel like we went through something akin to what our grandparents and great-grandparents went through. We did not. It was nothing like the Great Depression at all. And I think that people like to think they went through the gauntlet, they went through the fire, they, they went through the trials. Going through the Great Recession, you might have had your life financially screwed up, but you weren't worried if you were going to eat tomorrow. 99% weren't anyway. Let me tell you what. My grandfather told me during the Great Depression, he had these traps I found in a, in a garage. They had holes in them. Big rat traps. I'm like, what's the hole for? He goes, you nail it to a tree, you set it, you put peanut butter on it, you catch a squirrel, you could eat a squirrel. So, wow, that's pretty smart. Isn't that illegal? He goes, yeah, it's totally illegal. But during the Great Depression, it's what we did. These were old rat traps. When I was a kid, I found these things. They were made of, like, oak plank, right? And uh, and they were, like, store-bought. I'm not talking that they were, like, uh, something handmade. But they probably were handmade. But they were a commercial product. That's just how they used to build things. I said, wow. He goes, yeah, during the Depression, no one cared. I said, well, they work? He said, they worked good for about two years. There were no squirrels left. All right. If we got squirrels... You ain't suffering like my grandparents and your grandparents or your great-grandparents did. That's just reality. Um, but, yeah, the Fed is just pumping money in. And they've shown, once again, they'll always pump money in as much as they can whenever they have to, to do as much as they can to try to keep things going the way that they are. Um, now, the last one I find this really, like, I don't know. This comes to me from Mark. And it's from a company called Appeal Sciences. And they've developed longer-lasting avocados, and they're coming to stores. It's pretty compelling that it works. Just because something works doesn't mean it's good. With avocados, I might be all right with The piece doesn't really explain how they do this, okay? Um, but what the company says it does is they use food to protect food. And they say you can't see or smell the coating. But they basically give vegetables a second skin. Now, whether this is done through genetic engineering, whether this is done as some kind of a spray, I don't know exactly how they do this. And I didn't have time to research it today. But almost no matter how they do it, I have two different ways of looking at this. Because they do it like with asparagus. So it's edible, second skin. And they basically said they use food to protect food. So... If you do it with an avocado, because it reduces oxygen exchange and everything like that, and they show the avocados. You can look at the article yourself. It's, it's pretty compelling that it works. I mean, beautiful, bright green avocado when it would probably be pretty brown. Um, it's on the peel of the avocado. So when I eat an avocado, I don't know anybody's avocado peels. So we cut the avocado open, scrape out the avocado, cut it up, whatever. Okay. I'm probably, unless I find out something really bad about this stuff, okay with it. If you're doing it with asparagus, I am eating it. And now I need to know how it's made. But I do think there is a place for science in the world of food. Because the problem that they say they're trying to solve is, well, the real problem is they want more money, and this is a way they can get it. Which is how the market works. I'm okay with that. But... They have a valid point in the problem that they're agitating in their marketing for the cash formula. How do you make money when you sell stuff? You use the cash formula. You create a problem, which doesn't mean necessarily you cause the problem, though sometimes companies do. But by create a problem, I mean you, set, you take a problem and make it front and center. Then you agitate a problem. Okay, 
you explain how bad the problem really is. You make the, per the prospect feel like the problem's a bigger problem even than it is. Then you present a solution to the problem. My new widget makes the problem go away. And then you help the customer acquire the product. Okay, And that is, we have great financing, just sign here, it's easy to do, whatever it is. You give an easy way to do business with you. Create, agitate, solve, help, cash. So you can remember, anybody can remember that. It's a basic sales formula. So the, the problem that they're bringing up is a real problem. About 40% of food in the United States gets thrown away. And I have to admit that if I forget about an avocado for a couple days, a lot of times my avocados end up like, open it and go, oh, man... Right, and there's, you know, this is why I'm big on a lot of produce. I do frozen produce, green beans, asparagus, etc. I like flash frozen produce. No, the nutrients aren't gone because they froze it. Actually, they're preserved, and I can take out a handful and not need another handful for three weeks, and it's still there. So freezing, but as we talked about earlier, right? Freezing has weaknesses, doesn't it? Um, but if we can make food that lasts longer, that's resistant to pests, I'm. People think I'm like anti-science or something because I don't believe in global warming the way it's presented anyway, and because I'm anti-GMO. I'm not actually against, if you can explain to me what you did, how you did it, and why it's safe, even genetic engineering of plants. I'm against patenting of life forms. I, I think that's bullshit. I don't think you can patent a life form. I don't think that should be a thing. And I'm against genetically engineering food so that you can spray a toxin on it that I'm going to eat. I think those are both bad ideas. But if you, like, I've talked about this before. We had chestnut blight destroy the American chestnut. And we've tried to bring in Chinese chestnuts, and there's been limited results, and we've done hybrids and all. But there are programs to bring the chestnut tree back, and they're genetically engineering the resistance of blight in the Chinese chestnut into true American chestnuts. If that's all that you do, and you end up with a chestnut that can self-reproduce, and we can bring the chestnut back to America, which was an incredible natural resource... For, for wildlife and livestock alone, fine. But I gotta know, I gotta understand, and you saying, well, the government says, like I said earlier, the government says we're safe, that's not gonna do it for me. I need to know. So I'm gonna research this one more and find out more about it, and I'll catch up with you guys later on it. So anyway, that wraps up the show again. Hope you guys did enjoy today's show. If you did, remember, this is the last day of an amazing sale. You can get MSB for $25 a year for as long as you stay a, a member of the MSP. All you got to do is go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to sign up, and use code GIVEME25 when you sign up, and you'll get that discount of $25 bucks off, so $25 a year. Last day, it's going to go away like a fart in the wind. Remember, I don't extend sales. Next up, I meant to bring this up. Um, Tropical Storm Irma uh, has caused some real uh, Amelda, I'm sorry, Uh, Tropical Depression, Amelda, uh, has not got as much press as it should have. It's caused some real problems in Texas with flooding over 4,000 homes, completely flooded out, lots of other damage and things like that. And as many of you know, I, I started a nonprofit called CAC Teams for Citizen Assisting Citizens Teams uh, a few years ago. And I don't run it. I actually don't have anything to do with it other than I, can, I, I donate money and time and resources to it. I don't have any say in what CAC does at all because that's the way you do things right. You put people in charge, and you get the hell out of the way and let them do their job. And that's what CAC is. Well, they have been activated, and they're doing local and remote volunteers for operations for Tropical Depression Amelda. 
and you can help them out. You can learn more at cacteam.com, and there's a post on the blog today saying some of the things that they really need, and I'll talk about it more tomorrow. So I wanted to bring that up. Uh, and next, if you want to support this show and the work that I do, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. I'm bringing an item back I haven't had for a few months on the air Um, it's a clothing line, and I don't have a lot of clothing that's on T-Spaz, but I love these shirts. They're made by a company called Sand, Salt, Surf, and Sun, and these are a wicking fishing shirt with an SPF value of 50. Um, so that means only one-fiftieth of the sun's rays penetrate the shirt into your body, and that's UVA and UVB. So they're great for protecting you from sunburn, which most shirts do that anyway, Okay. What these really do great is I can even wear one of these long sleeve when it's a 90 plus degree day because they wick sweat off your body and they help keep you cool. And with fishing and all the outdoor stuff that I do, that's incredibly valuable. Um, sunburn sucks. Sunburn hurts. And sun is good for the prevention of skin cancer, yes. But sunburn is bad for skin cancer uh, just as uh, underexposure to sun can be bad for skin cancer. You don't want to be burned. So... They're great for, for you know protection from being burned beyond a short sleeve shirt and still being cool. Then the cooling cannot be overemphasized with these shirts, especially like if you're wade fishing or something. When I'm wade fishing in the surf, I start to get hot. I'll just like kind of dip down my whole body, just hold the rod above so that I don't get salt water in my reel and wet my whole shirt down and stand up. It's like an air conditioner. These things wick moisture off so quickly it just cools your whole core. And they're comfortable, and they look great. And they have really kick-ass-looking designs on them, too. So you might want to check these things out. Again, the, the brand is Sand, Salt, Surf, and Sun. And there's a lot of shirts that have this kind of a fiber blend. I just really like these ones, and they're affordable. And the same company makes generic ones, so they're just a flat color. No designs on them. And they're a lot cheaper. I have links to all of that in the write-up today. And you can find everything I've ever reviewed at tspaz.com. And if you shop tspaz, you help me and the work I do, no matter what you buy. You can buy anything you want through tspaz. You help us out in the work we do. That brings us to our song of the day today. And today's song of the day is a song called Lonely Avenue by Ray Charles from 1956. And this is just... One of those bluesy, awesome songs that Ray Charles is known for. This is a song that makes you want to just, I don't know, to me, I want to like find a bar with a bunch of leather in it. You know, leather seats, leather stools, leather chairs that cigars are allowed in and have a really good drink and a cigar. And I can't do that right now because I'm not drinking while I'm, uh, while I'm going on my weight loss, but it's it's it kind of the, that thing that, or just kind of just chilling out on the porch and relaxing, and understanding life is pretty good. But one of the big things everybody thinks of when they think of Ray Charles is what <clears throat> he's blind. We're kicking off Ray or not Ray Charles. We're kicking off Blind Singers Week this week, uh, and I've got a pretty good lineup for you. But this will be the first one. I just think you'll enjoy this song. I don't have a big. Uh, lesson in it for you, but boy, this is, uh, it does make me think back to when music was really music. I'll just put it that way. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. got two windows, but the sunshine never come through. You know it's always dark and dreary since I broke off, baby, with you.